If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnBest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I want you to meet Lucas Bewald, co-founder and CEO of Weights and Biases, a company that creates best-in-class developer tools for machine learning. Lucas founded Weights and Biases in 2019 to build tools for machine learning practitioners. With Weights and Biases, machine learning teams can track their models, data sets, and experiments. Their software is being used and loved by over 100,000 practitioners, and the company is now valued at over a billion dollars. Lucas is a machine learning veteran who sold his first startup, Figure 8, to Appen for $300 million. Prior to that, he studied math and computer science at Stanford, working in Stanford's AI lab. Let's welcome Lucas. Lucas, first, thank you so much for joining us today. We're honored to have you here. Um, I just want to start from the the basics for everybody that's out there. First, just in plain English, what is machine learning? And how has machine learning really evolved in just the last few years? Sure, sure. So... Machine learning is this process where instead of a human writing code that makes a computer do something, a human sets up an environment where um, there's sort of what's called training data that a computer looks at. And from that, a computer essentially generates its own code or algorithm to do something. And this has turned out to be useful for, for lots of different things. Like for example, you know, in your car, you know, looking at a camera and seeing where the pedestrians are, it's kind of very hard to say like, oh, that pixel means there's a pedestrian there. And that pixel, if you see that pixel, it doesn't. But um, computers are kind of able to learn by like looking at examples of here's where there's a human and here's where there's um, not a human and then building their own algorithm that's maybe even too complicated for people to understand that decides if there's a human in the frame or, or not. And then before we go into weights and biases, um, just give us a quick sense of how machine learning, how the category has evolved rapidly in the last few years. And then we're going to dive directly into your now billion dollar plus business that you built, which has really claimed the category. Totally. I mean, I always loved machine learning ever since I was, you know, a kid in the sense of like this idea that computers could learn and do stuff on their own is just feels so evocative to me. I think maybe everyone. Um, but you know, when I graduated school, um, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, the main uses of machine learning were really just ranking advertisements and then some things to like make more money and hedge funds on, on Wall Street. Like those were the jobs um, available, which, which seemed a little um, sad. It was just sort of the cases where like machine learning worked well. And now I think with kind of bigger data collection and bigger computers to, to kind of build more complicated algorithms, we see it really working everywhere. Like I think almost every company in the Fortune 500 or a company above a certain size at this point 
is investing in machine learning. And you see it in, you know, discovering new drugs. You see it in um, ag tech where, you know, tractors are now being smart about, you know, where the weeds are in the fields and, and spraying the pesticides on them. You, you see it in factories where, you know, there's machines that just listen to the noise that actual physical machines are making and, and predict if the machine is about to break or there's going to be a problem. So it's just been a real explosion of use cases. And I think we even feel it in our houses. Like, you know, a lot of people have an Alexa. I don't know if you remember how annoying it was when you would call something and there'd be the voice recognition and it would never work, you know? And now, you know, my, my two-year-old daughter chats with, with Alexa and doesn't even, I think, maybe really realize that it's uh, not a person. Yeah, I'm just laughing because um, no one that I know can call it Alexa because my name's Alexa and it always goes off when we're talking. And so I was waiting for yours to go off in the background here. Um, all right, let's now talk about weights and biases in just plain English. What does the business do? Uh, and, and what's the mission behind what you're building? Yeah, so our mission is to make the best tools for machine learning practitioners. So we want to make developer tools for the people building those machine learning models. And you know, the problem that we saw was there's lots and lots of software developer tools. I mean, maybe they're even common language now. Like, I don't know if folks would have heard of like, you know, GitHub or Datadog. I mean, we see all these very successful tools that help with that workflow of trying to make reliable software in, in big teams. Um, and, and there's a whole workflow that we've built up around making software and making it, making it work. And there's kind of tools that really serve the developers at each stage of that process. But what, what, what I was observing in the market was that um, those tools were totally missing for people building machine learning models. And there's some big differences, right? When, you know, when, you, when you're writing the code as a developer, it looks a lot like when you're, you know, teaching a machine to build a model, but it's actually wildly different, right? Like, you know, you, you have much less control over the process. Um, and so QA is a, is a totally different thing, right? Like, you know, you know, but we would never deploy code into production, for example, if it didn't pass any of our tests. Right, so that's the sort of traditional workflows. You have a CI/CD thing, and you know, but then um, with models, it's like you know, if if you want to detect every human in every frame in an image, there's naturally gonna be some mistakes, and you have to think about you know how many mistakes are you willing to tolerate? Like, is you know, mistaking um, you know a, a baby carriage like especially bad one that you want to you know care more about the accuracy there, right? Versus like detecting a tree or something like that. So. Um, you know, our, our goal, our big mission is to basically serve the people building models and make machine learning as reliable as software development. So from my point of view, in just a few short years, you've really become the leader in ML ops, machine learning ops. I want to just talk about what were the main challenges that you set out to solve as you were standing up weights and biases and just walk us through what those early years looked like, felt like, how'd you approach them? Yeah, I mean, I wondered if I was too early to the market. You know, I think my my wife was saying, I think it's too early, you know, for this company. There's not that many machine learning projects really in production. Um, is this really going to be a good um, business, so like a good venture scale business? So in the very beginning, it was just me and my co-founders for a fairly long time, just kind of listening to customers and trying to make things that were useful for um, ML teams. And then it kind of felt like this slow building explosion of growth, which I guess is what hyperscale feels like, where every week we saw more people logging into our tool um, and, and using our tool. And like from there, we see, you know, challenges every day, right? Like, you know, we grow the user and tool faster than we were expecting. And then we have, you know, scaling issues in our, our product. And then we, um, you know, want to build a company that scales up fast enough to serve the needs of our scaling um, customer base. And that creates all kinds of problems that I'm, you know, I'm sure you're very 
familiar with. Of course. Um, talk us through just again, to try to keep it simple for everyone listening out there. What is the product? Like just plain English, somebody comes, says, all right, I want to use reads and biases. What do they do? What does that look like? Yeah, I'll give you an example. Um, so, you know, we work with Toyota and they're building cars and they're trying to make, um, you know, cars that safely navigate the world. And so um, they hook up their training system that kind of trains these models that, you know, might go into a car and, and, and steer the car. Um, and as they're training, they stream data to um, weights and biases and it keeps track of everything that happened. It keeps track of, you know, what this automated system is being trained on. It keeps track of like what things they're trying. It keeps track of like, the state of the code. And so they can log in and they can look at, okay, yesterday, you know, I trained three models, you know, here's how they did, here's what the differences were. And then they can kind of save that and share that insight with one of their um, teammates. And then, you know, a year from now when it's deployed in production, you know, if there's an issue, they can go back and look at, okay, you know, this, this car has got confused in this situation. Here's the day it was trained. Here's who trained it. Here's what they were thinking. You know, when they trained it, maybe some notes on, you know, what was going on at the time. Um, does that make sense? I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, that makes, no, that makes perfect sense. Effectively, weight and bias is building all of the intermediary operations necessary as you are training computers with models to understand what do we do? What do we not do? What's working? What do we, if we need to rewind, how to keep track of all of that process? You now, as you just mentioned, have major customers from OpenAI to Lyft to Samsung and many, many others. As you, rightly noted, even your wife was worried, maybe this is too early, and clearly it's not. Talk a little bit about closing customers and your go-to-market strategy, and when when did you know it was really hitting velocity? Well, you know, so our go-to-market strategy is to let people use our product first before we try to sell them. So I think that's become kind of a sexy term, product-led growth, like a, a little bit of a buzzword of the last few years. But when we started the company, we didn't even really know what to call it. We just knew that we wanted people to use the product first and, and get value before we asked them um, for money. You know, the way it works is like someone is typically trying to train a model and, and they want to get more insights. And we're integrated into a lot of open source, you know, repos that people might be using or they do an integration themselves. Um, and they set that up and they, they get some insight and then they share it with a teammate. And then... Um, as we start to spread within a, a company, um, you know, they, they, they hit some, some features that we hold out so that we can have a, a business here. And then they typically would reach out to us and say, hey, we want to turn on, um, you know, some of your team support, you know, some of your kind of maybe single sign-on. Um, and at that point, they will either pay with a credit card or talk to our um, sales team for, for bigger or more complicated deals. Got it. Um, now, I want to kind of pause for one second. There's this amazing conversation that I've heard. Um, you've talked a lot about the false dichotomy in the conversation around humans versus algorithms. And you had this great point where you said, if you can automate half of it, that's pretty darn good. Can you walk us through this concept in the context of what you're building at Weights and Biases and in the broader background of people being worried about machine learning and robots eating the world and taking over? I'd love to hear your opinion and kind of how you view the future. Well, I think people should be worried about um, algorithms taking over things, right? I mean, it's a risky thing and and it can go badly and it also can go um, super well. Like I'm a, you know, I'm a technologist that believes in the power of technology, but I'm not a Pollyanna about it. And then a lot of what we try to do is make things safer by letting people 
see what's going on and what's going to happen, right? There can be a lot of unintended consequences with algorithms. And we see it in the news all the time these days, right? There can be, you know, unintended bias, you know, that it can be kind of unfair, like, you know, systems might work better for, you know, someone that's a native English speaker versus um, non-native. And it's really important to me that, you know, machine learning makes the world a fair place. And I think the good news is most people that are building models actually feel the same way. Like, I think most of the, the problems that you see come from um, mistakes that people make. And so I think a big thing is being able to see what the model is going to do before you deploy it into production, right? And it sounds so simple, right? Like, you know, when you see the mistakes, like, oh, you know, like my um, voice recognition system didn't work on people with certain accents. Um, and that might seem so like dumb, like, why would you deploy something that didn't work on, you know, like, you know, most people are not native English speakers, like, why wouldn't you want to make that work? But it turns out like we as humans, we're so good at some of these things, like we're so good at interpreting accents, we don't realize how much brain power, you know, we're using and, and, you know, ML can be like a lot more narrow. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of people with, you know, titles like ethic, like AI ethics and things like that. And, and I think overall, it's a really good thing. And I think the role that, that we can play, that my company can play, that I feel really passionate about, is when you give people good tools, you can really help them realize their vision better. And so I think actually good tools do help things be safer. And for example, um, when it's really easy to see what your model is going to do in production before it goes into production, um, you're more likely to check more things and, and avoid um, bad cases. But I, I mean, I'm glad that you bring it up. And I actually am really glad that it's in the the zeitgeist right now, because lots of things are moving to machine learning. These algorithms are too complicated for us to understand. And explainability is, you know, it's getting harder as these things get more powerful. So um, everyone should be educating themselves on this. If you fast forward 10 years, what are some of your predictions about the category? And I would love to get a sense of what gets you really excited. Interesting. Well, I guess what gets me really excited, and I don't want to come across as like a total Pollyanna here, but I actually think that ML can really solve some of the world's problems, like big problems. Like I, I think that, for example, um, if you look at self-driving cars, it's a really powerful thing and it's a really hard problem. Um, and we're really making progress on it. But something that gets me, me even more excited, which I think is a big area of application that's coming, is drug discovery. Right. And I think like we all know someone that's sick, right? And and it's it's actually like this incredibly hard process that our brains aren't good at um, to develop new new medicines. And it's really hard to simulate what they're going to do, right? Because like, you know, medicines are often very close to poisons. You know, we spend so much effort and resource on, on testing them to figure out what they're going to do. But I think ML is going to allow us to simulate these things better. And I predict we're going to see an explosion in new drugs getting suggested and really working from ML. And, and one other thing that, you know, I care a lot about is climate change, I think is a really big threat to um, humanity and our well-being, even in, in the short term. And you see some examples where, um, you know, machines being smart can make them use a lot less energy. Like, I love this thing that we do with John Deere, where um, they spray a lot less pesticides because they, they can actually identify the weeds and spray. Today, they spray pesticides, but only on the weeds, which massively reduces their pesticide consumption because they can identify them. But I think over time, they might even be able to spray non-toxic things um, like fertilizer that burn the weeds, and then the, the lettuces can grow you know, outside of that. And so I think like when we are able to put intelligence everywhere, it might really help us be smarter about, for example, energy consumption and pesticide consumption, and, and maybe make us use a lot less of the world's resources, which will you know, make the planet 
um, healthier for everyone. So, I mean, I, I sort of feel like it's a little crazy, but ML can solve um, so many, has a potential to solve so many of humanity's big problems. That's what really gets me excited when I, I roll things forward 10 years. And I think we'll start to see that. And I'm sure that we'll also see some scary things that we'll need to um, deal with and fix. You've said a few times that machine learning practitioners are almost more like scientists than engineers. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, think about the process of building code, right? And I love writing code, right? And you sort of like make a recipe of like something that you want a thing to do. You like spell it all out and like logic. And then, you know, when you debug, you're just like, okay, where's my logic wrong? When you build an ML system, you give up a lot of control, right? Because really what you're doing is showing the system examples and then seeing what it does, right? So you can't debug it in the same way. You sort of have to explore, right? Like you might wonder like, okay, why is my sprayer not spraying this lettuce in this field? And then you realize, oh, the field has snow in it and it never saw examples of um, snow before. And that, you know, when it, when it hits you, it's like obvious, but um, you know, when you're actually trying to figure out, okay, like what is going wrong here? It's much more like a scientific investigation. And it's also a lot less clear. Like it's typically, it's not like failing or succeeding. It's like the accuracy dropped by like 20%. And it's like, well, okay, what, what's happening there? And so I feel like you spend much more time exploring and looking at and, and analyzing like what the actual algorithm is doing versus sort of like setting up the process. Like it's, so it, it feels much more like an ex- exploration um, than writing code. But I love writing code and I love building machine learning models. So I'm not saying one is better. As you fast forward the next two to three years, what are the biggest goals that you want to see um, you accomplish at Weights and Biases? Well, I really hope that we build a good ecosystem around our product. We have a really great community that's growing. And one thing I'm really passionate about is like helping people build stuff on on top of our system that's that's useful for them. And so um, I'm really hoping that we build an ecosystem of kind of sharing um, results and, and kind of sharing analyses. So it's not just like everybody, we see everybody like inventing, you know, the wheel over and over on top of our platform. So that's, I guess that's my, my biggest goal. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Now, I want to transition a little bit, Lucas, to you. You know, I think one of the things that's so amazing uh, is that you really are a serial entrepreneur. Um, you co-founded your first company, Figure Eight, in 2007. You know, you started now a second business about a decade later. Let's just go back to the beginning. Was it clear to you always that you'd be an entrepreneur if we, like, met you at age 5, 10, 15? Has this been obvious? Definitely not. I, I think that's a controversial um, statement, maybe or unusual. I feel like some people say I was like selling, um, you know, lemonade when I was five years old or something. That, that was not me. What I really loved as a kid was building. And I, I fantasized about, um, you know, being an engineer, you know, ever, as long as I can remember. And so I think what happened, though, was that, um, you know, you get to have kind of more creativity and more scope building a, um, a company. But I still love to build all kinds of things like 
you know, model cars to building Legos with my daughter. So I think, I think I view myself as maybe more of a, um, a builder than an entrepreneur. Um, if we go and think about the fact that you've been a serial entrepreneur now, you learn so much, you know, myself having built a, a, you know, a few businesses, I at least think that we keep getting better at it. I know in my head why I think that is, but I would love to get a sense from you. What do you think you learned from the first business that you got to take to the second business? What do you feel like you were also able to shed? Well, I, I think the biggest thing is actually a little bit hard to articulate, but I think it's really in the details that improves. So I feel like, you know, just having seen um, lots of different things that can happen, I'm able to kind of better predict what's what's going to happen. And then I can clean up a lot of things. Like I think I can run a better staff meeting. I can run a better um, hiring process. I can kind of elicit feedback from customers better. So I think the real improvement is actually um, not someone like blinding insight. In fact, I feel like I mean, everyone asks me this question, you know, like every every new hire. And I think it's what's funny is like, there's all these sort of almost like platitudes out there now, like that, you know, Y Combinator does a great job of saying like, build stuff people want and like, you know, hire fast and fire fast and all these things. And they're all right. You know, they're, they're all like accurate, but I believe them like even more strongly now. Like, I think I would have, when I started, I thought I was doing these things. Like I thought I was kind of like, you know, moving fast and iterating and doing MVP and all these things that you know you're supposed to do. Um, but now I think I do them even more. As a founder, is there anything you hold sacred? You know, maybe something that you learned that made you really successful in your first business that you hold sacred as you go to work? I know it's an unusual question. I just have a feeling you'll have a good answer. I mean, there's two things that I really, really care about. And I, I really want every person in my company to be able to do. And one is to be able to listen to customers deeply. I think it's really underrated. Like I, I feel like people have this idea that they shouldn't listen to customers too much, or that sort of means that you're like following, you know, like you're doing everything that they're asking. But I really want every employee to have like a deep understanding of what our customers are trying to do. Because to me, that's like the whole point of the business. Um, and then I, I guess another one for me is like, if we're going to do a meeting, like if we're going to do like goal setting, it's really important to me that it's not throwaway. Like if we're going to set a goal that we like go back and look at it three months later, and it just drives me crazy when that doesn't happen because I feel like it erodes trust. Like I just don't want to be part of a business that's giving people meaningless busy work. And I feel like there's so much push to like create you know, organizational bureaucracy and, and busy work. And I, I want to make sure that everything we do, there's like actually a purpose to it. And we're actually going to like hold ourselves accountable later. I love that. Um, I want to go back and talk about your parents. Is there anything that they did in your childhood that when you look backwards, you think was really helpful to getting you here today? You know, I love that question because I've been thinking about it a lot because um, I'm, I'm a new dad. I have a, a two-year-old daughter. Congratulations. Thank you. And I, I feel like the thing that I really appreciate that my dad did when I was really small is I felt like he took me really seriously and he kind of followed my interests. And, and one thing that that really did was um, it left me with like a real love of, of math, which has served me super well. I mean, you know, being good at math helps you a lot in this world. And I think a lot of parents would kind of like push um, their kid to do math. And I think that I feel like what my dad did was more like 
I was interested in math. And so then he got really interested in math and it just felt like we were like exploring um, math together. And it just, I just remember it with like so much, like doing math problems with my dad was just like the funnest thing because he wasn't actually like amazingly great at math. He just sort of like shared my enthusiasm for it and, and really supported it. Lucas, just a few more questions here. Um, being a founder is really hard. As you know, it's the only job that rewards you with complexity. It's the only job that the better you are at it, the harder it gets, um, which is kind of a unique career path if you think about it. Um, what are your personal tricks and hacks? I think we all have them that help keep us sound and, and, and sane and stable. What are yours? What are the things you swear by? Well, I feel a little shy saying this and it might be a little off-brand or maybe too much on-brand, um, but I do an hour of yoga every day, which I actually started doing in the process of selling my last company, which is like unbelievably stressful. But I found sort of like light exercise that's not goal-oriented, um, which is really, really helpful for my um, mental health. I and mean, it's super specific. And I, I never saw myself as like a yoga guy, but it, there's something about sort of like you can't look at a computer. And it's also like not like so hard that you like dread it. Um, and, and, um, but I, I actually like look forward to doing that every morning and it really does, I can feel it like calm me down and, and, um, and make me happy. But I, I think for me, one meta learning that might be useful to, to your audience is I think when your company gets to even like 10 people, like showing up with like a good attitude and being present is actually the best thing that you can do for the company. And so then when you have that mindset, you just try to like find things around you that will like keep you um grounded and stable and and happy and it's really hard to do so when you find something like i you know i found with like yoga i think it's really good to just like really invest in it and and kind of hold it sacred because you know there's going to be so many reasons not to do it and at least for me it feels a little bit like selfish or something to be like maybe not taking a customer call at 7 a.m because i you know i really want to do this other thing that's going to make me better in the long term I love it. Um, I'm going to move on to our quick fire round where we wrap this up uh, and just answer literally first thing that comes to your mind. There's no right answer. We're going to dive right in here, Lucas. What gets you out of bed every morning? Uh, honestly, my daughter these days. <laughs> That's fair. That's a fair one. It's true for me too. Um, what's a favorite book that you go back to time and time again? Doesn't have to be a business book. Doesn't even have to be about anything work-related. This is a technical, technical book and maybe a nerd answer, but this book, Girdle Your Bach, that was popular. I think it came out in the 70s. And it made all these predictions about AI and many of them are wrong, but um, I just keep going back to it and I just kind of like love it. So That's awesome. Um, what is an interview question that you like to ask to really get to the heart of who somebody is? You know, I find the most telling question is something that went wrong at a previous job. Double click on that one. Tell us a little bit more. Well, I, I feel like there's a certain kind of person that um, I, I actually don't even look for the content of the response it's like the tone and I, I feel like there's certain people that you know can like tell you like just a horrible story with like you know like a positive attitude and like you're not even positive attitude, but sort of like you know some like space and like um equanimity and i really appreciate that and then there's people that really just can't you can just somehow people certain people can't control their like latent like rage or frustration, you know, about a, a previous thing. And I think it's a real warning sign because there's always going to be frustrations um, in any job. And it's important to be able to kind of like um, stay calm and move forward. 
I really like that one. That's a real, I've never heard that one. That's a great one. Um, last two quick questions here. Um, biggest pinch me moment to date at Weights and Biases where you said, oh my God, I can't believe we accomplished that. What was it? You know, is Meenik Jensen, the, the CEO of NVIDIA, which I think he's one of the most like underrated and, and spectacular CEOs. I've like looked up to him for a long time. And I think what was really exciting was he like really knew weights and biases and respected it and, and had obviously like looked into it. And, and that just felt really good. That's awesome. Congrats. That's very cool. Um, last question. Um, other than weights and bias, can you name one other startup or one other idea or one other thing that's been put on your radar in the last year that you think is pretty cool and you want to give a shout out to? I feel like I should name a particular company, but I just want to say all the companies doing AI for um, medicine and drug discovery are, are incredible. And I, I wish I could invest in all of them. It's just such an amazing um, space that matters so much. That's awesome. Uh, and just the big smile on your face just really uh, gave me a lot of hope for the future, by the way, which is pretty awesome. Lucas, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there, if you want to learn more, you can check out WNB.ai. That's Weights and Biases website, WNB.ai. And you can join us next week for Ink the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Thank you. <laughs>